Amen. Thank you, Louise. Thank you for choir. Sorry, Eric. Have you ever thought about the main line of that song? I've been hearing it sung for, well, probably over 40 years because I'm sure it was sung while I was in the womb because it's so popular, but that line says, leaning on the everlasting arms. And we know the word everlasting, but do we realize what it really means when we flesh it out? God doesn't get tired. He, there is never a time when he cannot carry us. There's just the fallacy that we think we are somehow carrying ourselves. And when we do that, we make it all about us. But when we lean on the everlasting arms of our Father, amazing things happen. We saw that in the Old Testament in the story of, you know, when, when the great prophet had to have his arms held up, and I'm losing sight of the minds of the names. But in the New Testament, we see God using, and in the Old Testament, God using broken people that learned to lean on him, and he used them in miraculous ways. I try not to do things without a reason, and what I pray, hope that gave you a taste for was the love that we have together. That supersedes things like the extraordinary general meeting that we do need to have following the service. But we are called to walk as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We should like being together. We're not always going to agree on everything, and that's okay. We're not actually created to think the same, except about one thing, Jesus Christ, and all that goes into that. But you see, it is so important for us to value the family God has brought us to. It changes over time, and in an international setting, it changes frequently. Uh, I was doing the math, and uh, in the past five years, our transitional number has gone up. In other words, roughly about 20 to 25% of our congregation changes every year. In America, you're often born in a church and you die in that church. Here, it's slightly different, and maybe your home countries are like that. So if we don't take time to get to know new people, we're missing out on how God has created us for relationship, relationship that reflects the very heart of God himself, to walk one with another, enjoying the gifts and abilities he has given us to bring glory to him and show the world, hey, there's a better way to live. This isn't all there is. There's so much more. But you see, the world looks at things from a certain lens and then when they get there, they wonder, how did we end up at this point? And I've, I've grown fond of hearing a phrase in my travels throughout Asia, and I find it specifically uh, frequent in Thailand. Maybe it's because I like to spend a lot of time in Thailand. But I'll be trying to bargain. Actually, it's really my wife and my kids like to do the bargaining. Uh, I'm not a, much a market shopper. But they'll go in. And we'll be asking about something. And let's use the example of Beats headphones. Now, we know going into that street market, they are fake. There is nothing real about them. But when you go up to them and they start describing to them, where'd my tool go? Thank you. This is what you hear them say. And you hear it all the time. Same, same, right? It's the same thing. Yeah. But no, 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 no. But it's also different. We hear that 
all the time. And it's a famous phrase throughout this part of the world. I'm taking it with me this summer as I spend time in America uh, to explain things to people. It's the same thing, it's just different. But our scriptures today bring up how a group of people that thought they were very religious, called the Sanhedrin, and a young man named Saul, who knew all the right answers, thought they and a guy named Stephen were talking about the same history. But they came to vastly different conclusions. And what I want to encourage you to do, you don't have sermon notes today uh, because your discussion guide is really simple. Read Acts 5, 6, and 7 and spend time looking at the sermon of Stephen, looking at the response, and then jump over to chapter 9 and see how God began softening a heart long before and changed a heart later on and how the world was changed as you consider the ramifications of the obedience of a man named Stephen, the rebellion of certain people, and the only God-powered change in the heart of a man named Saul. And what, what God did is those pathways intersected when they all would have said, we're following God. But only one had a relationship with him. If you open your Bibles... We're going to, I'm going to read you the scriptures that we'll highlight today, and then we'll dive in and just make some basic points that I think are t- very important for us. The first thing we hear is you need to start in the beginning of Acts chapter 6. The elders, the apostles of the church, the church leaders uh, were faced a division among the church where not everyone was getting cared for in the right ways. Have you ever felt like there's just not enough of you to go around? Well, that's what the original disciples, the apostles, were facing. They could not meet all the needs before them. Even though in Acts chapters 2 and 4, we hear that God is bringing people together to give all they have for the sake of caring for one another, and it's a blessed picture of what the church can be. The apostles couldn't keep up, and there was a certain group that felt they would be left over to the side. And the apostles, the elders, we would call them, realized that they really need to be focusing on the prayer and ministry of the word. And that they could not keep up. So they did a very wise thing that Jethro learned to do long before. And that was they delegated. And with delegation came the institution of what we now call deacons. In our church, the deacons are called the governing committee. At some point when we get permission, they'll actually be called deacons. But for right now, we call them the governing committee. And what their job was to do was to meet the needs of the people, to care well and to fulfill the offices of being the body of Christ, helping equip, helping care, and making sure the elders, the apostles, could do the work of the word and the work of prayer. Not that the deacons weren't praying, but they were the hands and feet of the church to meet the needs of those around them. And one of those men that was anointed as a deacon was named Stephen. The requirements for this position where they had to be full of the Spirit, they had to be obedient. You'll see it listed right there. And they had to be full of God's power. Notice I said God's power, not their own. And so by the time we get to verse 8, 8 through 10 of Acts chapter 6, we hear a little bit more about this guy Stephen. A man full of God's grace and power. Interestingly, first... He'd received the grace of God. And then in knowing who he is in Christ Jesus, he was living out the power of God. 
Christians too often try to do the right thing first without embracing the grace that we have been given, the position of where we are, living out the strength of God at work in us. We try to do it in our own strength. Peter, uh, Stephen was not. And in that, in that power he was given, performed great wonders and signs among the people. It goes on to say, opposition arose, however. You know, when you do the right things for the right reasons and people are used to doing the wrong things for the, what they think are the right reasons, they will oppose you, even in religious circles. Please don't be surprised by that. It happens, it's always happened, and as long as we await the arrival of Christ Jesus' return, it will continue to happen. Andy and Brooke, we are trusting that God will use them to bear much fruit, but we're also very aware of our need to pray for them because they will face opposition when they seek to teach people to live radically for Jesus Christ. The same is true for each of you when I pray for you. They faced members... Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Sanhedrin, Jews of, the Cyrene, of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. There will not be a quiz on where they were, who began to argue with Stephen. Oh, isn't that great? When we disagree, we start arguing. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Where did his wisdom, where did his power come from? Throughout the book of Acts, we see that God's power to do, God's wisdom to speak, always come from him using his people to do more than they could do on their own. And Stephen was certainly an example of that. Was there ever a prophet, your ancestors? So so now Stephen was called to give an answer for why he was preaching. Why was he talking so boldly about Jesus Christ when these religious leaders said no. In fact, Stephen would go on to say they killed the Messiah and that didn't sit well with them. But Stephen busts out into one of the most powerful sermons you can ever read uh, or you would have heard written. But he did it in a very unique way because you need to understand religious leaders of the day, high-powered Jewish people had certain requirements. One, they knew the law backwards and forward. They knew the Bible that they had up to that point. They knew it better than you and I will ever know it. Most of them, to get to this high level of authority, probably had all of the Old Testament memorized. How are you doing on that? We're not there yet? They were. But with that knowledge came, in English we would say the word haughty. I would call it arrogance. And they made it look, in fact, Jesus talks about, woe to you Pharisees, a similar religious leadership group that stand around showing people how great and long your prayers are. You're missing the point. Well, Stephen decides to do something again, anointed by God, powered by the Holy Spirit to speak. And he gives a history lesson. He tells the very people opposing them what they already know, a history of Israel. That's a pretty audacious move because they would look at him, educated as he was, say, you don't know what you're talking about. We do. We know that history. It's our forefathers that wrote that history. But then he gets to this point and things start to go south here because up to this point, yeah, it's the same, same. We're all in the same boat. They were agreeing. They're like, yeah, Stephen's maybe not as dumb as we thought he was. But then he says this. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Uh Uh-oh. Now he started to tread over into what they would have considered heretical teaching. Now he was right, they were wrong. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And he goes on. You who have received the law that was given through angels have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, when they heard him not only affirm the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, which they did not agree with, affirming the resurrection of the dead, therefore, and then calling them out and saying, you're not even following the God you say you are. You're disobeying, disobeying and you're not following the law. When he would make that accusation that they aren't following the law, ooh, that would have made him mad because if there was one thing they were good at, It was following the law and knowing how to get around it. Nobody was better than the religious leaders of the day at finding loopholes, but making sure everyone saw them as right. And Stephen, this man of very little, said, you didn't even get when the Messiah was prophesied and you didn't even understand that he was right in front of you. You betrayed him and you killed him. And of course, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him, which is a nice way of saying they were mad. And and today I would say it's when that vein starts popping out in the side of your forehead. They were that sort of angry, that sort of upset. But Stephen, again, look at what the next words are. Full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They're not just mad that he's having a vision. They're mad that he is again claiming Jesus is the Messiah. Present tense. At this, they covered their ears. The ESV says they stopped their ears. What does that mean? Let me give you a good example. How many parents do we have in the room? Would you raise your hand? How many of you have, have had the joy of parenting a teenager? Okay, let me explain it real clearly. The rest of you have been a teenager by default or you're about to be. Have there ever been those moments where you know words are coming out of your mouth, but that kid is not hearing a word you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It happens, right? It's like Charlie Brown. Nothing. And there's just this blank stare. That's exactly what was happening here. They had stopped their ears. Nothing was getting in. No way was this now. They believed he was a pagan. He was a non-religious follower of God. He was not worthy of being heard. And they tuned him out. Not only did that, they do that. But they continued in their fight or flight response and decided to fight. And so they yelled at him. That's always a good thing to do, right? That always goes well. And so they yelled at the top of their voices and they all rushed at him. And we see the dynamics of what you would call in sociology, you would call the mob mentality. And the mob got together and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold their sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep and his pain was no more. I added the his pain no more because I'm making sure you understand that him falling asleep means God has brought him to glory. He is not having to endure that suffering anymore. And he's seeing truth of the matter that the love of God is eternal and that he was leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. We go on because there's this man named Saul that was watching. And right at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, we read, not only was Saul there watching with approval, but he took that as a rally cry to go on a persecution reign reign of the followers of the way. They weren't even called Christians till later on in the book of Acts. Right now they're called followers of the way, and Saul is hunting them down. At best, he's imprisoning them, and if he can find a way to kill them, he's looking for it. He wants them gone. But God. Because when you look toward the end of Paul's life, as he's later named, and in, now the timeline doesn't quite explain it, but in three chapters on, Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul's miraculous conversion, and he is renamed Paul. And Paul, toward the end of his ministry life, is sitting in prison, Joyfully, I might add, because he writes the letter of joy in Philippians. We went through that last year. And he says these words, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Let me just pause there and explain what Paul has the authority to say when he says, I've lost all things. One, member of the Sanhedrin, well-respected member. How do we know he was a well-respected member? Because they gave him the keys to the kingdom and say, go purge this kingdom of the pagans that are worshiping a false god, making heretical claims. They literally sent Paul out at the front lines of persecuting the early church. So he was a member of of the most influential group of the people of Israel. Second, we know that he was trained by like the best teachers. He was a student of a man named Gamaliel, which is akin today of if you get the privilege of sending your kid to Oxford or Harvard or whatever. He had that sort of reputation. Not only that, but because Gamaliel was his rabbi teacher, he would have learned extensively. He was highly intelligent to qualify to study at the feet of Gamaliel uh, and to let his feet get dusty with the dust of Gamaliel's feet. Paul was privileged. His position would have allowed that. But all that was cast aside for the sake of and worth, and greatness of what he says, his words, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all that I had rubbish, garbage, filth, sewage, is the most appropriate term there that I can use in church, that I may gain Christ. Think about that. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. John would say abiding, living, dwelling in him, not having a righteousness of my own 
It's not me. I'm not doing this in my strength. Continued theme from Acts. Continued theme from the whole Bible. That comes from the law. There's a knock on those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those Sanhedrin members that thought that their righteousness came from being a good rule follower. But that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Lord, as we spend just a few minutes fleshing this out, teach us and soften us, we pray. Amen. What do we need to know? First, we need to see real briefly that we're facing a revisionist history here. Some of you, if you're a podcaster like me, I don't write podcasts, but I listen to a ton of them. And Malcolm Gladwell, one of my favorite writers, if you've never read his stuff, it's just like, he blows your mind every time. And you're like, how did he get there? But he produces this podcast called Revisionist History, where he goes back and he looks at events that have happened in history that we've commonly accepted with this interpretation. And he says, are we sure we got that right? Are we sure we weren't maybe missing something? Stephen is doing the same exact thing, just with a lot more courage and boldness. You stiff-necked people, it's always good to start by insulting your audience. That always makes them want to listen. But see, he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was telling it like it was. And there is a time and place to speak truth into situations. Jesus did it. Oh, you people of little faith. Paul did it time and again. And here Stephen does it. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You have not been set apart for God. You're just following the rules. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You see, Stephen and Sanhedrin believed the same history, but they came to very different conclusions. The Sanhedrin we see in scriptures and throughout church history were those that thought following the rules and defining what following the rules meant in a way that was convenient and best for them was the best way to go. Stephen, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seeing what God was doing in the world, seeing the power of... Jesus Christ, resurrection, giving us victory once and for all over sin and death, saw that there's a different way to live and it's a relational standpoint rather than just a knowledge standpoint. What do I mean? Knowing about God was clearly not enough. Paul, this guy that sat there and approved Stephen's murder, would then later write to a church he's trying to teach to get along. And they're getting stuck in this habit, both in the letter to the church in Corinth, the first one and the second one. He's trying to bring them together to say, look, we're following Jesus Christ and he has invited us to know him and to love each other out of that knowledge and out of that love and out of that transformation. But you're so stuck in knowledge that puffs up that you're not loving and building up. Those who think they know something do not yet know it as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. We cannot separate heart from mind. They have to work together in a relationship with Jesus Christ because it is he who gives us access to God the Father. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray that even when we don't know how to, Knowing about someone isn't the same thing as knowing someone, is it? See, here's the thing. There's this basketball player. He's really good. 
His name's LeBron James. He grew up an hour away from where I grew up. I know exactly where his home was growing up. I have driven by it. I know what high school he went to. I've seen that. I know what hospitals he would have gone to. I know who, what areas he would have hung out in. I know which basketball courts he would have played at. I know a lot about LeBron James. He knows absolutely nothing about me. I do not know him at all. And as far as I know, probably never will unless he shows up in Akron at the same time I'm there, which would be really cool, by the way. I'd be super excited. But see, the difference was the Sanhedrin could tell everybody all about God and what God wants them to do. Stephen knew God. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into the heavens and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen knew Jesus Christ. He had a relationship with him that made there to be, to be no fear in facing death because Paul would later teach us for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He, he learned that from Stephen. He learned it from Jesus. The difference... Stephen understood the agape heart. And Peter writes it this way, in your hearts, old, old versions of the NIV said, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. When God has gotten a hold of our hearts, he's transformed our hearts to thinking about sac- self-sacrificial love. That's at the heart of agape love. And it starts in the heart. It's not just being able to give all the right answers. Knowledge is so important. I expect every one of us to be good apologists, knowing why we believe what we believe, but without understanding in our hearts that we are loved and known by God and it is out of love for him that we act and to do what he's called us to do, we've missed the point. An agape heart says, here I am, use me however you see fit, God. Spill me out, pour me out for all those around me, even if it's unfair, unjust, and uncomfortable. Use me. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it, God. I'm going to be sensitive to you in my heart. Religion would say that they knew God, they knew about God, but they didn't glorify him. So you got to ask yourself the question. You might say you know God, but does your life show it? Jesus would say, are you bearing fruit? They didn't give thanks to God. They didn't give him credit for what work he is doing. It's not how great our church is that Vincent and Marianne and Rowena yesterday got baptized. It's their obedience to the Lord, God transforming them from the inside out, and we get to celebrate and be part of that and give thanks to God for his work in their lives. It's not our work, it's his. Religion says, look at how good we are. Religion, again, like knowledge, it puffs up. But a changed heart leads to miraculous work. What do I mean by that? Well, read those verses in front of you. Acts 9 Now we're moving on to the person of Saul. And look at what we found out. He fell to the ground. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, we hear? At once, 
So we go through, I've, I, for the sake of time and space on a screen, I cut out, but Saul comes to this vision and this encounter with Jesus Christ, and it changes everything for him. And he realizes that it wasn't the same same. That Jesus made all the difference in the world. And Jesus got a hold of his heart. And he was transformed. So much so that what do we find just a few verses later? He starts preaching. Did he go to seminary that fast? Did he send to the right teachers that quickly? No. But knowing Jesus so radically changed him so quickly that he couldn't help but tell people, Hey, have you met Jesus? I have and you should too. That's where you start. We don't know what those early messages say. We're told that Billy Graham used to practice preaching at trees until he got the hang of it. And I don't know who Paul was preaching to, but he wasn't ashamed. We hear him say those actual words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And from the very beginning, Paul starts preaching. Unashamed of what people might think, everything has changed in his life and his pursuit was toward Jesus Christ. And miraculous things happen. Look at what we consider going on, and I've already read these passages, Paul goes from chasing Christians down to being at the leader of the forefront of church planting. It is no small thing when I say that we get to worship our living and most high God today because in large part, the ministry of Paul taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles because we, by definition, are not Jews. We are not Jewish folk in this room, or maybe you are and I don't know it. But for the most of us, we would be considered Gentiles. Paul went through Asia Minor and the gospel spread to the whole world. And he was faithful. He considered everything else rubbish, but for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. Nothing else mattered. And he was going to do that at much personal cost, at much painful experience. Dude, I would have given up. When you think about it, he was shipwrecked. He was bitten by snakes. Oh, I don't like snakes. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. This does not sound easy. But see, the gospel doesn't promise it to be easy. Never once do we see Paul saying, I wish I wouldn't have followed Jesus. There is zero ounce of regret in the life of Paul or in the life of Stephen or in the life of so many of the saints before We think of church tradition and what it says about the Apostle Peter, that he was so humbled by the opportunity to be crucified that he asked them to crucify him upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified the same way as Jesus. (laughs) He wanted to make sure Jesus was glorified even in the most painful death imaginable. A changed heart leads to miraculous work. So what's our takeaway? First... Seek knowledge. The Bible interacts uh, or intertwines knowledge and will pretty consistently. And it's this will that says, I can do it on my own. Knowledge is not a bad thing. As I've told you before, statistics say that I live and you live in the most intelligent city in the world. Per capita, the highest IQ of anywhere in the world is in this city. That's intimidating. Use your powers for good. Use them to reason well as the scriptures introduce us to. Use this knowledge you have been given to show the world what Jesus has done to change your hearts. Because if you're only basing everything on knowledge, you're doing things in your own strength. And what can that turn into if it's followed to its logical conclusion? 
uh, terms like legalism, where we just are about the rules, or superiority, like we saw in those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those Sanhedrin, look at us, we're better than you. Jesus said, come to me. Paul tells about Jesus that he made himself a servant, a foot washer. It can also lead to arrogance, and finally it leads to selfishness. We make following God about looking at us and how good we are at following God. The minute we do that, we've missed the point. Now, knowledge, again, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Knowledge is important. You should know this. You should know it well. You should be students of it. You should enjoy. Read other people. Read people even that you don't agree with so you can learn to reason and understand and grow in your knowledge and understanding. But in the same way, there's another group of people that go on the other side and just say, how great it feels. Oh, I'm going to follow Jesus because it feels so good when I follow him. And I say to that group, by all means, enjoy that great feeling of following God. But there will come times when you're in a valley. How do I explain that briefly? Easy. If you are married, there was a time, at least unless it was an arranged marriage and then maybe it was different. But if you were engaged in the process of dating, when it was awesome, right? When everything that other party did was just wonderful and they had no faults and they did nothing wrong and they were great and we were just going to be so happy together and oh this is gonna we're never gonna fight we're not like all those other couples we're so much better than them you remember those days you remember a week after your honeymoon when you realized she puts the toilet paper on wrong and your world comes tumbling down. Now, hopefully it lasted longer than a week, and I still adore my wife 16 years on. And I love her far more deeply now than I did when she said I do. But the feelings of dating didn't last. They were replaced with something far more sustainable, a true love for one another out of a love for Christ. Feelings fade. And if we base everything on feelings, it's unrealistic. And then we throw that to others. Well, if you haven't experienced God like me, oh, you're not really following him. And what does that lead to? Again, superiority, arrogance, exclusion, and missing the point of a relationship with God that's rooted in his word, not just on what feels right at the time. See, both are dangerous. We need the heart that feels things deeply. Don't run away from that. But just the same, we need the mind that reason things well. Don't forget that because we need a math problem that works. We need knowledge of God plus the agape heart for God that leads to a satisfied soul. Our whole being satisfied through Jesus Christ. We don't do that on our own when our heart has been set apart, sanctification, and when our mind continues to seek him out, we know there is nothing better. Paul both knew it and felt it. Stephen knew it. Look, Stephen could explain the whole history of Israel and do it in 50 verses. He didn't go one verse by one verse by one verse. He just gave a speech. But less time than what I've taken to preach this morning, Stephen explained the whole history of Israel and then gave a gospel call at the end. He knew the word. 
but he also felt it. So much so that he could confidently and lovingly say, Lord, don't hold this against them. He saw them with self-sacrificial, agape-hearted love. So we finish with this. When we have his knowledge with a transformed heart, God does powerful things. We are asking God right this minute, right this hour, right this season to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, to do powerful things through us. Why is he not? Maybe it's our lack of faith. Maybe we're not spending time orienting our heart and our mind and our very soul and our hands toward him. One of my favorite hymns says it best. Take my life and let it be holy, set apart, consecrated, Lord, to thee. In a few minutes, we're going to continue on and have an extraordinary general meeting, one that's been a painful process, one that was through no fault of your own. You haven't done anything wrong. I've done many things wrong, but this isn't through choices that have been made on our parts. But our conviction is we will seek the Lord and we will follow wherever he leads and we will do it with joy and we will not grow weary because we are leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ. And with him, we are following confidently, knowing he will lead us in paths that we didn't even think were possible. We are begging him to do powerful things through each individual of Alliance International Church. We're begging him to revise history, to change the narrative, to draw us back to himself and say, Lord, change the world as we spread out all over the place. Let's pray. I keep saying it, Lord, and I'm going to say it again. You are good, and it is your steadfast love that endures forever. Today we cry out and we ask God, that we would know about you and that we would know you from the heart equally well and that we would unashamedly and aggressively follow wherever you lead us. In your name I pray, amen.